welcome to talc teaching and learning consultation skills this is the talc talks podcast helping everyone who sees patients to improve their consultation skills to get better outcomes and this approach can even increase your job satisfaction This podcast is part of the module called TALC, Skills for Effective Explanations. It covers the chapter which is called Why why are effective summarising skills the engine of the consultation? I'm going to repeat that. It covers the chapter which is called Why are effective summarising skills the engine of the consultation? Summarising is a very useful skill. It provides a kind of receipt to the patient, demonstrating that what they said has been heard and understood. Summarising also acts as a punctuation point in the consultation. During active listening, skilled communicators will often provide a paraphrase, which means expressing the meaning of something using slightly different words, partly to achieve clarity and partly to demonstrate listening. This does not mean repeating everything the patient says, which is called parroting. Parroting soon becomes wearisome to the patient and wastes a lot of time. However, skills such as echoing a few words the patient says, mentioning a few key words, reflecting back, interpreting the emotional content or the meaning of what the patient says are all active listening skills using a paraphrasing approach. A summary is something different though. Summaries are best used at the end of one whole section of the consultation, bringing together the key factual information and the key effects on the person and their feelings. Summaries combine facts and feelings. Such a summary pulls things together concisely into a kind of neat package, quite short and pithy, almost like a newspaper headline. A summary should sum up where the consultation is up to at that point, particularly about where one particular line of inquiry is up to. And it's usually followed by a linking statement that will lead on to the next phase of the consultation. This approach provides structure and flow, as well as ensuring that the patient knows that the clinician has heard and more importantly understood the key issues so far. When used in this way, effective summarising can help to keep the consultation moving along so that there is more effective time management. In summary, useful summaries sum up the facts and the feelings. Let's think about some examples. Here are two contrasting versions. Think about this one. So Mr S, you've come about this odd chest pain which came on at the gym when you were using the treadmill. You also get pain on the stairs at your office where you work as a financial controller and on hills and it radiates to your left arm sometimes. It does go away at rest and the gym has said you can't go there unless you have a letter from me giving you permission. You're not breathless, you don't get any swelling of the legs and you have a family of history of heart disease in that your dad died aged 58 from a heart attack. Is it all right with you if I ask a couple more questions to fill in the background, which will help me to assess things more fully? The clinician then proceeds by asking about smoking, alcohol, work and family matters. This is an example of simple repetition or parroting and wastes a lot of time. Time is also wasted by asking permission 
for questions which the patient will almost certainly see as very reasonable inquiries. Think about this more effective approach. So Mr S, on balance, this chest pain is likely to be quite significant. Before I examine you, which is a linking statement, can I check whether you smoke and how much alcohol you take? While this is succinct, the patient may often respond by saying something like, yes, well, I do think it might be significant. I get it on the stairs at the office and when I'm out, of walk, out, when I'm out walking, something serious must be happening. The patient is repeating information the clinic, clinician already knows here. A common reason for repetition is that the clinician does summarise the facts effectively, but fails to feed back to the patient that they have also understood the patient's underlying feelings about the situation. If this does not happen, the patient may end up repeating themselves over and over, which needless to say is not a good use of consultation time. So let's think about an even more effective way to summarise this issue. So Mr S, this chest pain is quite significant, especially in view of the sad death of your father at a young age. And before I examine you, can I check whether you smoke, how much alcohol and so on. The latter version is a much more succinct summary. It includes references to the emotional significance of the issues and together with the linking statement, moves the consultation forwards. This is why I think of summarising as the engine of the consultation. This approach can be reinforced even further when there's a check-in with the patient as well. So you might say, so to sum up before I examine you, you have this significant chest pain, especially worrying for both of us because of your father. Have I got that right? Here is another example, summarising after an examination. Is this summary effective or not? Have a think. So, Mr S, your blood pressure is 142 over 80. Your pulse is regular. Your heart sounds are normal with no arrhythmias and your chest is clear. I can't find any arcus in your eyes and you're not anaemic. I think we need to arrange some tests like an ECG, some blood tests and a referral to the chest pain clinic to assess your heart in more detail and decide what else might need doing. Again, there's a lot of detail, not all of it necessary. It might be more effective to say, good news, the examination was entirely normal. I think you are getting something called angina. This means further tests will be needed. What do you already know about angina, Mr S? Here, time is not wasted enumerating normal findings and using unnecessary jargon like arrhythmias. And the start of the explanation part of the consultation has been signalled by asking the patients about the, their existing knowledge about angina. The phrase, good news, the examination is normal, also sets an emotional tone for the examination findings. Clearly, this patient could still be having angina but it is good to know that he has normal blood pressure and that he doesn't have signs of heart failure, for example. The planning part of the consultation can be signalled further when the patient has understood the explanation by saying something like, let's move on to what we need to do next to help you feel better now and to get more information about your heart to help us plan your care in the future. These approaches keep things moving and again, this is why we can think of summaries as the engine of consultations when they're used appropriately. 
summarising effectively can help the flow and help us to keep to time in clinics and examination situations alike. Making sure to include the feelings as well as the facts helps us to ensure that the patient knows we understand their perspective. When we're teaching and learning about this, it's important to think about the difference between paraphrasing in an active listening context and summarising at the end of a whole section of the consultation. One way is perhaps to think about the summary as almost being like a headline in a newspaper. And we might look at some transcripts of what people have said and perhaps generate some headlines of our own. Something that might appear in the newspaper. For the man we've been talking about, it could be something like treadmill chest pain man needs physical examination and further tests or normal examination so worried doctor explains next steps. This isn't the summary that you're going to say to the patient. It's more a way of organising your own thoughts before you say what you're going to say to the patient. It can be useful to look at some um, ways of summarising by practising this in a normal conversation. So it might be useful to ask somebody to tell you all about their recent holiday. You can use some in information gathering skills such as encouraging statements like go on, tell me more and any relevant active listening skills such as paraphrasing, empathising, echoing back, reflecting and so on. Start when a reasonable picture is emerging of their most recent vacation. Most people will be able to tell you quite a lot of detail with that approach. Now, the educator can model an inefficient summary, for example. So, Zach, you travelled to Paris by train for your last vacation. You went with your sister, brother, mum and dad and your two cousins to celebrate your cousin's 30th birthday. You stayed in a big apartment and visited all the famous sites, including the Eiffel Tower, the Tuileries, the Louvre. And your highlight was a day out at Versailles, where you also happened to meet George Clooney. He was filming there and your cousin nearly fainted with excitement when she got his autograph. It can be useful to take that summary and perhaps in pairs or small groups prepare a headline for the newspaper and a better summary of what has been said. A summary should probably be about one sentence long, contain the gist of the account and finish with a linking statement that will signal to Zach that you now want to hear about plans for his next exciting holiday. So we could end up with something like Meeting George Clooney was the highlight of your big family trip to the sites of Paris. Where are you going next, Zach? At the end, it's worth thinking about the key learning and committing yourself to practising these skills in the next consultations that you're having. There's more information about this and some resources and a checklist for practice in the written material that goes with this chapter. Today I'm going to be talking about some skills from the module Skills for Effective Explanations and concentrating on the chapter called Whose News Is It Anyway? Clinicians work very hard in the first part of the consultation to gather information and then develop an understanding of their patient's problem. Listening skills are really crucial to the effective gathering of information and there's a whole module called Talc Skills for Effective Information Gathering.
However, when clinicians get to try and explain their findings and make a plan of care with the patient, sometimes they seem to abandon their listening skills and resort to a more lecturing sort of style. Here is my assessment and here's the treatment plan I have for you. Most of the time it seems a bit like a business as usual approach with the clinician's mini lecture taking the place of dialogue and the clinician having quite fixed things to say rather than tailoring it to the individual. On other occasions, clinicians can become a bit tense and almost paralysed because they think what they're going to say is bad news and then they think they need to use some special and difficult breaking bad news skills. However, if you think about it, nearly all our explanations are a kind of news that we're giving the patient and the impact and significance of that news to an individual patient can't be assumed, not in advance. This really means that the skills of breaking news are the same whether that information is neutral or potentially low impact or whether it's even good news or whether it is indeed bad news. The skills of breaking news are similar in all consultations and need to be practiced skillfully in all situations. If clinicians learn how to give news, i.e. information, effectively in all circumstances, the situations where really bad news has to be transmitted will become relatively less threatening or difficult. One thing it's important to appreciate is that the significance of information is not the same in all circumstances. The meaning of any given piece of information or news depends on the context for each individual patient. Clinicians can only really understand the significance of their remarks if they elicit a response from that specific patient. And here are some examples that clarify this concept. So let's say a patient comes to ask for their smear result, which shows some borderline changes requiring a repeat smear earlier than usual. For many patients, this will be fairly neutral news, perhaps creating a nuisance more than anything of having more frequent smears for a while. But for a woman who knows that cancer of the cervix has claimed the lives of most of her older female relatives, the same news may seem like very bad news and even life-threatening news. Let's think of another example. Let's say a patient has an MRI scan. They've had leg pains and the scan shows a prolapsed disc requiring urgent referral and a strong possibility of neurosurgery to follow. For some patients, this will be bad news. And for someone who has fears about surgery or worries about anaesthesia, this could be a terrifying development. On the other hand, for someone who's been suffering undiagnosed leg pain for a year, this news might be received with huge relief because an accurate diagnosis has been made with the strong possibility that surgery will relieve them of their pain. Clinicians can develop skills for effective explanations that are suitable for any or all of these disparate circumstances, rather than using standard explanations for specific diseases, as in, this is how I explain diabetes, or thinking, now I need my special breaking bad news skills. Breaking news is one of the powerful generalist skills that was explored in the module Talc Effective Methods for Teaching Consultation Skills. How can educators unleash the awesome power of generalist skills? So what are the skills needed for effective breaking of news? These are, first of all, state the problem in clear language, 
with a general indication of what the news is about. So, for example, the results are in and they're looking good, or the results do show some very significant changes. This corresponds to the popular idea of a warning shot when serious disease is to be discussed. The next thing is to discover the patient's own prior knowledge about your stated diagnosis or your stated results. Then you need to find out what the patient's individual information needs are. 80% of people like a lot of information. They like as much information as possible actually, but there's a smaller number of people who actually prefer just to cut to the chase and be told what's going to happen. The next thing is to stage the information into logical small sections that tell a story. The reason for that is because we easily remember information that comes in narrative form. We need to pause frequently and actively ask for the patient's responses, the patient's ideas and concerns about what we're saying. This will help every clinician to understand the significance of that news for that specific individual. And the chapter called Is Chunking and Checking a Good Way to Eat an Elephant? explores these specific skills in detail. The other key thing is to explain what findings mean, including signs of health as well as signs of disease. Some of this is covered in the TALC module Skills for Effective Explanations in the section can words really be healing in their own right? It can be helpful to use specific aids to explanation and recall, for example, diagrams or written materials like leaflets. It's even more helpful to personalise these for the use of the specific individual. Clinicians should write the name of the patient on any leaflet or information sheet and customise it for them. So, if there are some parts which are especially important, highlight these with an asterisk or a highlighter pen. For example, this information about lower carbohydrate diets for diabetes is likely to be of special interest to you because you've told me you're very keen to avoid tablets. You can also address irrelevant information by saying things like, I'm crossing out this part about avoiding pregnancy when taking these tablets because you are male and it doesn't apply to you. This personal approach increases the patient's confidence in the explanations or care plan and also helps them to remember the important parts. It is also important to remember the ideas and concerns the patient has which were explored during the information gathering part of the consultation. Incorporate these in any explanation, especially if the clinician can be reassuring about the absence of a disease that the patient was particularly concerned about. Remember to be empathic with the patient's responses. Concerns that might seem trivial to you as a clinician might be very important to the patient. Be non-judgmental and accept where they're coming from. This will help you to identify and manage the patient's expectations sympathetically. And you will find more details about how to do this in TALC Skills for Effective Planning of Care, Why are Shared Management Plans More Effective? These skills should be practised in all conversations where information is imparted. While it seems as though there are many aspects to consider here, they really boil down to this. Stage the information into chunks, preferably in a narrative, and elicit the patient's response to all the stages. Use active listening skills to ensure a continued dialogue 
in which the patient's perspective is fully valued. Of course, it can also be helpful to practice telling people about highly significant developments, such as a new diagnosis of serious disease. Few clinicians feel really comfortable telling patients they've got cancer, motor neuron disease, or that end-of-life care is now the only appropriate option. And a role play is a suitable simulation to practice for those times, just as BLS training on a dummy helps us to practice for a real cardiac arrest. However, if the clinician has developed effective breaking news skills in ordinary everyday consultations, those skills can be adapted to almost any situation, however serious. It's worth reading about this in more detail in some of the resources, and I think the section on explanations in The Inner Consultation by Roger Neighbour and in Skills for Communicating with Patients give a rich picture of various strategies for effective and memorable explanations. There is more information about this in the references and resources section of the written materials that go along with this podcast. And there are some examples there which clinicians can use to develop as skills rehearsals to practice some of these skills, especially chunking and checking, and especially personalising your information to the patient that you're actually with. Welcome to this podcast from the series TALC. It forms part of the module called TALC Skills for Effective Explanations and Planning, focusing on explanations. The chapter concerned here is called Is Chunking and Checking a Good Way to Eat an Elephant? One Bite at a Time. As long as the centuries continue to unfold, the number of books will grow continually and one can predict that a time will come when it will be almost as difficult to learn anything from books as from the direct study of the whole universe. It will be almost as convenient to search for some bit of truth concealed in nature as it will be to find it hidden away in an immense multitude of bound volumes. That was Diderot talking about information overload in 1755. We're still worried about information overload now. Every age tends to think that humans are bombarded by too much information. In 1956, George Miller asserted that humans can only hold seven, he thought plus or minus two, items in their short-term memory at a time. Some psychologists have even reduced this to four items. Perhaps this partly explains why clinicians often worry about giving patients information, because they believe that patients don't remember what they are told, or that they only remember three things. These concerns may mean that clinicians try to limit the amount of information they share with patients. I'm not so sure whether this is the most relevant way of thinking about things. The research which gave rise to the ideas that we could only remember seven things at a time was mainly done by asking subjects to remember sequences of digits like telephone numbers or other arbitrary lists like lists of words. That kind of memorisation has very dubious relevance to clinical situations, in my view. However, further research that suggests that so-called working memory is actually influenced by many factors, including whether the information is presented clearly, the length of words, and also whether the information links to what people already know or understand. 
Now, in almost all studies relating to clinical contexts, what we find is that patients retain most of the relevant information they hear, and they actually would like more information than they are usually given. The chapter in Skills for Communicating with Patients that deals with explanations has an excellent summary of the evidence around this issue. Suffice to say, in primary care, 90% of patients recalled all the key points that they were told. In the United States, this part of the consultation is often called patient education, and that phrase might help us to link the skills of education and training to those of the consultation. In both cases, the aims and objectives need to be linked to the needs of the participants or the needs of the patients, and we have to choose the right communication methods. There are effective strategies to improve our explanations that will in turn lead to more effective shared decision-making, more personalised care and better planning of care. These approaches enable patients to assimilate and retain information by organising it into discrete sections that follow logically, like a story. We remember stories with a beginning, a middle and an end far better than random facts. It's especially true if the narrative relates to our own existing concerns and what we know and understand already. I think a good example of this is kind of like a soap opera. A person's life is like a character that we see in Coronation Street or listen to on the arches. When we get new information about them, we remember it because we fit it into everything we already know about the story and about the character and the way they behave. And when patients get new information that's linked to their existing concerns, which takes their perspective into account and which is personalised for them, they'll remember it. So for effective explanations, chunks of information need to be followed by an invitation for the patient to respond, which is often referred to as checking, hence chunking and checking. All too often, the second half of the consultation is a monologue from the clinician, telling the patient what the clinician has decided needs to be done. After listening carefully during information gathering, it's almost as if the clinician says, it's my turn now, takes over and starts to dominate the conversation. If you watch a video, you can do a sketch diagram to show who does most of the talking at different stages of the consultation. Less experienced consultors tend to listen more at the beginning and talk a lot more in the second half. The second half of the consultation must continue to be a dialogue. Tuckett describes this as a meeting between experts and what he means is that the clinician has expert knowledge of their medical field. However, the patient has expert knowledge of themselves, their own situation and their own constraints. In the process of checking the patient's response to the information, the clinician will continue to use essential skills from the gathering information and building the relationship sections of the consultation. Clues and cues from the patient continue to be important and eliciting the patient's thoughts, concerns and hopes about the explanation and the possible plan will enable a fruitful dialogue and effective care planning will follow. When a patient has been able to understand their situation and discuss how they will deal with things, 
they're more likely to adhere to a suitable and personalised management plan. This also increases patient satisfaction and reduces clinician stress. Shared plans are more likely to result in the contributions of patient and clinician being aligned. This reduces conflict and improves outcomes. Clinicians need to bear in mind that the most suitable plan for the patient's care may not be the clinician's own preferred plan. It's the patient's preferences which really need to carry a lot of weight. Many patient factors require compromise, adaptation and nuance so that shared and personalised management plans are realistic and likely to be carried out by the patient. If we insist that our own ideas as clinicians are prioritised, this can lead to dissatisfaction and poor adherence, and that can lead to poorer clinical outcomes. After an effective explanation in chunks with checking has been provided, in language that the patient understands, which means no jargon, and when that explanation relates to the patient's own thoughts and concerns, the clinician will want to move forward then to develop an agreed personalised management plan with the patient. And this requires other skills covered in the module TALC, Skills for Effective Planning of Care. This includes chapters about shared decision making, discussing uncertainty and decision making in complex situations. It's worth emphasising an important point which is encapsulated in the Calgary-Cambridge skill number 36. Gives explanation at appropriate times, avoids giving advice, information or reassurance prematurely. Examples of where this can go wrong are very commonly seen in videos. A patient might come along and say, I want some antibiotics for this cold and they get an immediate explanation about why antibiotics are not needed for colds. That statement about antibiotics is a clue. It needs to be parked for later on. What if the examination reveals a rather stoical patient who's consulting very late in an illness who actually has a pneumonia? The premature explanation about antibiotics has to be rather painfully rescinded, which makes the clinician seem incompetent even if they're not. It's important to think about the TALC skills for information gathering can read in between the lines, make for a more accurate diagnosis to learn about good strategies for picking up clues and cues. A patient who says something like, this is probably nothing, I just want you to reassure me that this spot is not important, may kind of lure the clinician into premature reassurance before they've examined things carefully and realised that the patient has several other spots one of which might be a melanoma. If clinicians structure their explanations and listen to patients' responses, then use that as the starting point for discussing the plan of care, the second half of the consultation becomes less stressful and more effective. Acquiring explanation skills is vital for daily consultations, and as performance in examinations is often poor in this part, these skills will also improve performance when it comes to passing exams. This podcast is part of the module which is called TALC Skills for Effective Explanations. It specifically refers to the chapter which is called 
How can your words be healing in their own right? Explanation and planning skills are crucial for effective consultations. In some ways, they remain the Cinderella subject in consultation skills, teaching and learning. This is because they often end up having less time devoted to these skills. In teaching, just as in consultations, a lot of time tends to be spent concentrating on information gathering and learning about that, which leaves less time for explanations. Failure to achieve a suitable management plan following an explanation is a very common cause of examination failures. So why is this? Many problems in the latter half of the consultation do occur because the foundations of effective rapport and skilled information gathering are not adequate. And if the clinician and patient relationship has not been well established either, the second half of the consultation might not go so well. However, if those foundations are in place, like the foundations of a building, then explanation and planning form the roof of a sound construction. An effective early start to consultations can be undermined if the patient doesn't understand the explanation, doesn't agree with the plan and goes away unsatisfied with the outcome. When a clinician explains to a patient what's happening to them and describes a suggested plan of action, we all too often see two related phenomena. First, the patient stops talking because the clinician takes centre stage. Secondly, the clinician stops listening because they consider the patient's contribution has already been made. Although the patient may be silent, this does not indicate that they understand or agree to any plan proposed by the clinician. And effective care is undermined if patients and clinicians take different views of what should happen next. Patients make their own minds up every time they do or don't take a tablet, attend for follow-up or tests, and when they make their own judgments about which lifestyle advice to follow. So the way we approach explanations can have a big effect on the outcome of the consultation. Explanations use a complex blend of skills, and as with other sections of the consultation, the skills can be learned bit by bit. In this specific chapter, the effect of the clinician's own language is covered. Could suitable words actually help people to get better more quickly? The language we use in consultations can greatly change their impact. And it can also change how it feels to the clinician and the patient. I'm going to invite you to compare two sentences. What if I say, I can't find anything much particularly wrong with your child, as far as I can see anyway. And... My full examination shows a healthy, normal child. The first sentence is a bit hesitant. I cannot find anything much particularly wrong with your child, as far as I can see anyway. And the listener will tend to notice words like I can't, wrong, anyway. And the words, as far as I can see, give the impression that perhaps someone else could see something. The second sentence my full examination shows a healthy, normal child, emphasises full examination, normal and healthy. Now, which sentence would encourage a parent to continue self-care when the child has an otherwise mild upper respiratory tract infection like a cold? 
which sentence might encourage the parent to seek a second opinion, perhaps in the emergency department or out of hours? Which sentence would inspire confidence in the natural healing powers of the child? My money is on my full examination shows a healthy normal child. These examples show how words can have beneficial effects, sometimes referred to as part of the placebo effect. And words can also do harm, which is sometimes called the nocebo effect. The first sentence could be thought of as having a nocebo effect, in other words, potentially doing harm, while the second sentence could be considered to have a healing or placebo effect. Researchers and clinicians have been concerned that nocebo effects could arise if too much information is shared. For example, we know that identifying side effects increases the likelihood the patients will experiencing them. Yet nocebo effects can be reduced while retaining open and honest communication by using a variety of skills to balance the information we're giving. We can use our language skillfully by using simple direct language with no jargon. We can use words that encourage and uplift. And we can also think carefully about the effective use of small words like and, but, if, when. There's a whole chapter on this in the module skills for building effect. I'm going to say that again. There's a whole chapter on the use of the small words in the TALC module skills for effective explanations and that chapter is called how to change everything by using small words skillfully. In this podcast our chapter focuses on positive language and explanations and here are some of the ways in which words can have positive effects in consultations. First of all Positive priming words are very useful because they imply care and success. If we use words like looking after you or listened carefully and I noticed or comfortable or relaxed or phrases like really helps or thorough examination or full examination, we're conveying accurate information but we are also framing the patient's experiences of being cared for and of being normal, comfortable, relaxed. The use of positive words like healthy, strong, normal or as expected can be more effective than phrases like not abnormal or negative tests. Such phrases sound, well, they sound a bit negative, don't they? And negative is bad, isn't it? So... If something is normal, say so. If something is as expected, say so. And rather than saying, I'm going to do a quick examination, say, I would now like to do a full examination of whatever part needs to be looked at. There's another way in which we can use words positively. And these are called turning words. Examples would be, but and however. These can change the impact of the words that precede and follow them. And there are details about how this affects consultations in the chapter, how to change everything by using the small words skillfully. Let me give an example. I could say this drug has side effects, 
but it's extremely effective. In that situation, the but diminishes the effect of the beginning of the sentence and enhances it, enhances what comes after the word but. So we remember that this drug is effective. If we turn it around the other way, this drug is effective but has side effects. The patient tends to remember what comes after the but, in this case, the side effects. There are other ways that we can help to create a positive atmosphere and encourage acceptance of relevant actions. These are called presuppositions or assumptions, I suppose. So for example, if you say, when you take this medication, your pain will improve, there is a presupposition that the medication will be taken. And that has a different effect than if you say, if you take this medication, your pain will improve. When we say, when you take this medication, we are assuming that the medication will be tried and it focuses our attention on the improving part. If we imply doubt about taking medication in the first place, the improvement part can seem less prominent. We can also use language positively by avoiding the use of jargon. It can be an interesting exercise to watch a consultation and just pick out all the technical words that are used. We should also aim to use shorter words and sentences. All these approaches can help to bring positive language into consultations and are perhaps best illustrated by considering how we talk about the results of physical examinations, the results of tests and the way we approach undifferentiated illness, which is a hallmark of primary care. Words can become a part of a collaboration with the patient. And a good place to begin is to avoid the use of clinical jargon whenever possible. We can explain any jargon words carefully if indeed they must be used. Let's explain this in a bit more detail. I think we generally understand the concept of someone having a second language. And indeed, for many of our patients and even many of our clinicians, English itself can be a second language. It's worth remembering the extent to which medical practice generates its own second language. Estimates vary, but it's generally accepted that medical students learn something like 10,000 and 50,000 new words at medical school. If I knew 50,000 new words in French, I think I'd be pretty good at it. Needless to say, patients don't learn this second language that we learn at medical school or in clinical practice in other specialties. Becoming aware of just how much jargon is used in daily practice can be a bit startling. Anyone in a clinical context would feel quite comfortable if I said something like, I need to exclude a PE, so I'm going to get a CTPA and we might need to anticoagulate you if that's positive. In this context, the words exclude and positive may have very different meanings to the clinician and to the patient. Exclude does not sound like a particular good idea. Exclusion is often a negative issue, like excluding people from access to care or something. Most people think a positive outcome is a good outcome. Obviously, CTPA and anticoagulation are jargon words also. After an examination or when communicating test results, it's very easy for clinicians to make good news sound like bad news to the patient, who may then feel that more should be done or they might feel let down if they haven't got any answers. 
Here are some illustrations to provide examples. Let's think about what the language conveys. How about saying, I'd like to take a quick look at you. This could easily imply carelessness or an incomplete examination. How about saying, I would like to do a thorough examination now, or I would like to do a proper or complete or careful examination. How about saying, I'd like to do a careful examination, especially to check up on the concern that you mentioned earlier about whatever that was. Let's think about feeding back the findings. I can't find anything abnormal in your chest. Does this mean that everything was normal or merely that the clinician was not skilled enough to find anything? What does this approach to the say to our patient? It come, could come across very differently when the clinician chooses alternative expressions such as when I examined your chest, your heart and breathing sounds were all completely normal, which is good. Again, the same principle applies when we talk about scans or results. If I say the scans were all negative, negative things might be seen as good things to clinicians, but not to patients who may think a negative scan is a bad thing. Better to say good news, all the scans were entirely normal. The skillful use of positive language can help to build a trusting and effective relationship even if the content is not good news in itself. So here are some examples that show how when we show concern and commitment, even in difficult contexts, it can help to provide a better tone to the consultation. So how about saying, all the things you've told me so far have been very helpful in clarifying what's going on, even if you're going to go on to say some bad news about what those findings mean. What about saying, as a transitional statement, now I understand what's been happening to you, can I take a proper look at your chest and examine that? What about saying, we need to take the situation seriously, especially in view of what I found when examining you? This is not saying it's good news, but it's telling the patient that you're taking them seriously and that you're giving them your full professional attention. If the news is difficult or bad news, what about saying, I'll be following you up throughout this illness to ensure that everything goes as well as possible. That will give the patient a sense of accompaniment and care, which goes beyond the technical aspects of referral or treatment. Another way to use positive language is to refer to what patients have already told you when you're checking things out. So, what you have told me about your family history is important. I'd like to check that out in detail. This again conveys professionalism and interest in what the patient is saying. It builds a relationship without taking any extra time. We also need to think about some of the phrases that we can use when describing pain or other symptoms that are caused by dysfunction rather than structural issues. So here are some examples. People often talk about the rather sinister and irreversible wear and tear when they're describing osteoarthritis. However, this is an illness which tends to flare and settle. So why not let's call it wear and repair? Wear and repair indicates the process that's going on and provides encouragement that improvement can occur with the decrease in symptoms. 
We often talk about irritable bowel syndrome and talk about spasms in the gut. It can be more helpful to talk about tightness in the gut, which treatment can relax. Very often we know that pain can occur without tissue damage. For example, muscle cramps, very painful, and they're caused by tight but entirely normal muscles. When the muscles relax, the pain goes away. These cycles of spasm and relaxation play a part in abdominal pains related to irritable bowel syndromes, many musculoskeletal pains, headache and so on. And one of the important things to bear in mind, and perhaps to explain to patients, is that hurt is not always due to harm happening. Not everything that is hurting is actually damaged. Often hurting and pain are symptoms that come along because of things that can change, like muscle tension or tightness. All these are different ways to use positive and healing language with patients. There are lots of interesting ideas in the books and references listed in the written materials that go with this chapter. This podcast is part of the module called Talc Essential Skills for Effective Explanations and Planning of Personalised Care. And it concerns the chapter called How Can Your Words Really Be Healing in Their Own Right? This is an important matter because the words we speak are not often thought of as treatment interventions, but they can have big effects. Garner Thompson said there are words that harm and words that heal. And this is something very well worth reflecting on. As clinicians, we are sometimes unaware of how our language affects the consultation. Words can have a beneficial, sometimes called placebo effect, and can also have a harmful nocebo effect. Every clinician will have had a good experience of a patient saying something like, I feel so much better now, when all that has happened is a conversation with no pills, no referrals, no actual treatment being involved. While the use of a positive language is a very big subject, this particular chapter highlights the small words we use so often and how to use them more effectively. These small words include and, but, if, yet, however and when. These simple words can have important placebo effects in the consultation and help clinicians to achieve more effective management plans. When observing people talking, it's fascinating to observe just how often the word but is used and what a negative effect it can have on the conversation. Avoiding the use of the word but can be quite difficult, but if we replace but with and, the flow of the conversation often changes in helpful ways. When we remove the implicit glitch from the word by using the word but, we usually release more information and more ideas. Here are some examples to put this into context. Your situation is really complicated, but I will do my best to help if I can. This is a slightly negative message. Somehow, do my best doesn't really sound that hopeful, and if I can, certainly introduces doubt. Let's compare this to a subtly altered sentence where but is replaced with and and followed by the replacement of if by when. Your situation is really complicated and I will do my best to help when I can. The use of and makes the second half of the sentence stronger and replacing if with when 
indicates a greater commitment to help. In a complicated situation, which sentence would reassure a patient more? Which sentence would help to build the clinician-patient relationship more effectively and increase trust? But has other important effects in explanations and can sometimes be used to advantage in situations where framing effects are useful. The word but is one example of something called a turning word. Such words turn the sentence so that what follows the but is highlighted and has greater importance. In the following sentence, the words after but are more likely to be remembered and acted on. Think though, is this a desirable outcome? This medication is extremely effective for your condition, but I will mention the side effects. Putting the desirable message after but changes the effect of the same words, so we'll put them around the other way. I will mention the side effects, but this medication is extremely effective for your condition. In the latter version, it is more likely that the patient will remember the information about effectiveness, and this is likely to encourage them to use the medication regularly. However, is another turning word and has a similar effect to but. Here is an example. Everything was completely normal when I examined you. However, I would encourage a rather gradual return to usual activities after your recent illness. There is some positive language here. The clinician uses the phrase completely normal. And yet there's also some doubt about the recovery period. An alternative could be something like I would encourage a rather gradual return to your usual activities after your recent illness. However, everything was completely normal when I examined you. This emphasises the normality of the examination and ends the sentence on a positive note. Adding something like, all that's very encouraging for your recovery, can further harness the power of positive words. We can also help to promote certain actions by using words that assume or presuppose that those things will happen. Think about the following sentence, which implies some doubt about whether the medication will be taken. And so the part referring to improvements might seem less prominent. Listen to this. If you take this medication, your pain will improve. The next example assumes the medication will be taken and the focus shifts to the benefits of doing so. When you take this medication, your pain will improve. Of course, it's not just clinicians who say but. There are often mutually unsatisfying exchanges when the patient says, yes, but, as in, it would really benefit you to stop smoking. Yes, but I've been smoking since I was 10, so it's too late now. Yes, but there is benefit in giving up smoking at any age. Yes, but it's my only relaxation. Yes, but there are other ways to relax and so on and so on until the conversation comes to some kind of irritated finale. There is more detail about the conversational consequences of why don't you yes but in a book called Games People Play, which is listed in the reference list. We can instead try to turn things around, accepting the patient's point of view non-judgmentally and being curious about their situation. What thoughts are you having about your smoking? I'm wondering what your thoughts were about the best way forwards. Endorsing the patient's point of view can paradoxically be more motivating than giving instructions. So giving up smoking is really hard right now because of your son being at home and he smokes heavily. 
Let me know when you're ready for some help with stopping smoking in the future. Note the use of the word when here too. I didn't say if you're ready for some help, but when you are ready for some help. And this priming word starts to set a, set a sort of seed in somebody's mind. Clinicians who are aware of the power of the small words will be able to highlight positive outcomes and desirable behaviours with good effects on patient adherence and even recovery. The subject of positive language is an extensive one and there are more details in the module Talc Skills for Effective Explanations, Can Words Really Be Healing in Their Own Right? and also in the references in the written materials that come with this chapter. There are also suggestions for how to learn to use these turning words more effectively in the written materials that go in this chapter. A first step might be simply to notice how often you hear the word but, either from yourself or from other people. Become more aware of this issue and try some alternatives. If you find yourself wanting to use the word but, try just saying and instead and seeing what happens. In a more sophisticated way, you can change the order of the sentence around the turning word and see what happens. Note and reflect what happens when you do this in your conversations. You might find the outcomes quite interesting. This podcast concerns the module Talc Essential Skills for Effective Explanations and Planning of Personalised Care. It's about the chapter which is called How are Bad News Conversations Opportunities to Show That You Really Care About Your Patient? Breaking bad news is often considered quite a difficult skill. Partly, this is because the skills needed to break bad news build on all the skills of the consultation, including those required for beginning consultations effectively, preparation and planning, and responding to the patient with active listening and empathy. Having good explanation skills and familiarity with collaborating with patients to make personalised care plans will also help any clinician who has to break bad news. However, the clinician must also prepare themselves psychologically to be able to use the skills for breaking bad news effectively. Clinicians who work with patients inevitably come into contact with illness, disease, suffering and death. If the aim of our work is to cure sometimes, alleviate often and comfort always, we sometimes find ourselves focusing excessively on the cure sometimes part, forgetting that ageing, death and disease are inevitable and we'll never be able to cure everyone. Medical care is sometimes portrayed as heroic, with powerful treatments curing even serious conditions like cancer. Clinicians are sometimes almost idolised when they bring about effective cures. This can be matched by a painful and disconcerting disappointment for clinician and patient alike when it becomes clear that there is bad news. A new serious or untreatable disease perhaps, progression of an existing disease, treatment failure or even impending death. Clinicians can sometimes feel themselves to be at fault when a disease progresses and ask themselves, could we have done more? They fear being blamed. As a preliminary to sharing any bad news with a patient, the clinician needs to first understand who the news really belongs to. However tragic, the reality of our work is that bad things happen, even to good people. In difficult situations, 
clinicians need to provide their professional support. This means understanding the news fully before giving it, being able to provide support and safely hold a patient's emotional responses, and knowing what the options for the next steps are likely to be. Many clinicians are rather uncomfortable in the presence of strong emotions, especially if patients express their grief about bad news with anger, tears or unrealistic expectations. It's hardly surprising then that clinicians worry about how to break bad news and fear that their skills will not be enough to get them through difficult consultations. However, developing skills in this area is both necessary and possible for all clinicians. There are some distinct stages and careful attention to all of these will make the process go rather more smoothly. Such conversations will never be easy or pleasant, but if they're done well, they can build an effective relationship with the patient that will carry through to whatever is coming next. The stages to giving bad news are often discussed as if the key issue is somehow using the correct protocol or the right mnemonic. Guides to giving bad news are helpful prompts, but the key skill is to be able to stage the news and to hear properly and work with the patient's responses to that news. These are the skills covered in the chapter Talc Skills for Effective Explanations Is Chunking and Checking a Good Way to Eat an Elephant? When the breaking of bad news goes wrong, it's usually because there's been an attempt to miss something out, to hurry through the process, or when the clinician themselves finds it difficult to observe distress or strong emotion. Let's consider these stages. Preparation for the clinician. The clinician needs to prepare themselves and to create the time and space for a quiet and private conversation. The clinician should explore their own feelings a bit about what they're going to say. Are they sad and upset because it seems that their patient's life is to be shortened? Are they fearful of blame? Are they worried that they will not know what to do if a patient weeps or expresses other strong emotions? Simply being aware of what causes apprehension to you can help. And if possible, discuss this with a colleague beforehand, because this will help you to be prepared psychologically. Other preparation needs to be more pragmatic. Prepare the room to be private, uninterrupted, and allocate time for the conversation. Ensure the patient is accompanied if that's what they would prefer. And think to yourself, what exactly is the news? Make sure you have all the details to hand so that any questions can be answered easily. It's also helpful to know in advance what the plan is likely to be. Will this be a referral, more treatment, a change of focus to palliative care perhaps? In an emergency situation, for example an unexpected leukaemia on a blood test, it's helpful to have a conversation with the admitting team in advance so that you can tell the patient the specialist is expecting you today and tell them exactly where that expectation is. Are they going to the ward? Are they going to the clinic? Are they going to A&E? Think about preparation for the patient. The patient needs to be prepared that big news is coming. After using their usual skills to establish rapport and perhaps to set an agenda, the clinician can say something like, I have information about your health which is quite significant. I'd like to discuss it with you. Or maybe the results are back and show some significant changes we need to discuss. Even at this initial stage, a pause to allow the patient to respond is useful. Sometimes the patient will make it clear that they themselves are expecting bad news. 
Inviting a response by saying something like, what do you know already about the tests and what we're looking for, can help to orientate the patient to what is to follow. Patient responses should be handled with empathy and without judgment. Empathic comments should relate to the individual wherever possible. It's better to say something like, this news has come at a bad time so soon after your father's death, which relates to the individual patient, rather than, this must be awful for you, which is a generic response that could be said to almost anyone. Another stage is to assess the patient's own starting point. This is really important. What do they know already about their condition? What have they been anticipating? How much information do they like to have? Most people want a lot of information, but a few patients just want the basic details. Always remember to give the information in stages, in chunks, and use pauses to allow the patient time to respond after every piece of information. Be guided by the patient's response as to how quickly to disclose all the details, remembering to use the skills of chunking and checking that we mentioned before. Respond with empathy and kindness to whatever comes up for the patient. It's important to state the reality accurately, although gently. A very harsh and direct, well it's a cancer actually, can be so disturbing for some patients that they shut down and simply do not hear anything else. A gradual approach can build up to the basic information. The news is not what we hoped. The scan and the biopsy do show something very significant. Allow a pause for the information to sink in and gauge the patient's response. Are they ready for you to continue? It looks like a serious growth caused by a tumour. Again, pause for their response and maybe even invite a response. The sample that was taken shows that it's a type of cancer called, and then you can name the particular condition. Allow a pause at that point so that the patient's response can come. And if it doesn't, invite a response such as, what is passing through your thoughts now? Often the patient's responses will guide you towards what information is needed or what the patient's concerns are. At times the patient may respond with a flood of questions. What will happen now? Am I going to die? What's the treatment? What if I can't go to work? What will happen to my family? Trying to answer all these questions at once risks the start of a sort of mini lecture, which is probably not what the patient needs. And the clinician can feel rather overwhelmed by all those questions. A better way is to empathise with the underlying feelings that underpin all those questions by saying something like, you have a lot of questions right now. It all sounds as though you're feeling pretty overwhelmed. If such a statement is followed by a pause, the patient's response will be a guide to what's needed next. Remember that saying, what questions have you got now, is more effective than saying any questions. It may be the patient will then prioritise and say, the most important question I have is this. Or they may feel recognised in their situation of being overwhelmed. And they need then some holding skills, a pause, a chance to express their emotions rather than a simple list of answers to their questions. So what are holding approaches? Holding approaches are useful when powerful emotions come to the fore. Receiving a significant piece of news usually requires time for its impact to sink in and pauses offer the necessary space for patients to digest and process what they're hearing. 
Space and silence can be important holding phenomena. Silence can sometimes make clinicians feel awkward and result in a rush to say something to fill the gap. But silence holds the patient and helps them to gain some clarity because they can think about things without distraction. It is natural and normal for bad news to give rise to powerful emotions, which vary between patients. Could include shock and disbelief, sadness, fear, anger, or a frightening sense of vulnerability. Emotions may be expressed verbally, and the clinician must listen attentively for any clues or cues about this. But emotions can also be expressed non-verbally with weeping, restlessness, or avoidance of eye contact. Silence allows the patient time to process and begin to cope with such strong feelings. And the clinician can be prepared for this and be willing to sit with the patient's distress, at least for a short while. Psychologists advise against touching people who are expressing strong emotions, as this can be felt as an injunction to stop or suppress feelings. And if someone is angry, touch can be experienced as hostility or as a threat, which can inflame the situation even more. Paradoxically, if, if you're able to say something like, take your time, in a calm and kindly way, the patient will often respond to this acceptance by being able to gather themselves back together. A period of silence, if a patient is weeping, perhaps followed by a very small nudge to the tissues, but not to the patient, can be calming and helpful. Many clinicians are anxious about the expression of strong emotions, perhaps feeling that the patient must be soothed and made to feel better, or that sitting with someone else's distress is rather painful, especially if the bad news indicates that there will be no quick fix. Receiving strong feelings with the skills of non-judgmental acceptance, empathy and kindness is actually very helpful to patients who do not expect everything to be fixed, but hope that they will be cared for and held psychologically at such difficult moments. It follows that the clinician needs to be self-aware enough not to become embroiled in the patient's emotions, acting more like a kindly witness rather than offering to cure or fix everything. It's important to be able to distinguish between the emotions that belong to the patient and the feelings that belong to ourselves as clinicians. This is an important skill and it means having appropriate boundaries in place. Having effective boundaries for yourself does not mean being indifferent or callous to the patient's suffering. Rather, it means that we can recognise the nature of the patient's emotion, name it accurately, and tolerate the expression of that emotion without taking it personally. Sometimes patients can be angry about the consequences of any bad news. This does not necessarily mean they are angry with you as the clinician, although it may often seem that way. The clinician who remains calm, observing and kind will do a great service to the patient who is distressed by the bad news they are hearing. It means the clinician has remembered that the bad news belongs to the patient. Finally, it's useful to identify the potential plans for care going forwards. Emphasise what can be hoped for in the present situation, showing yourself to be an ally of the patient. For example, saying something like, we'll be working together on this, I'll be here to help you get through it. Summarising and skills for closing the consultation will be needed to check understanding and appropriate follow-up, and these are covered in the appropriate modules. 
After such conversations, the clinician themselves might need a short break to reset themselves. And this is covered in the chapter called How Can You Go Home With Energy To Spare in Module 1. Clinicians might also consider scheduling a debriefing conversation with a trusted colleague to process how things went, reflect on what went well, and perhaps how to deal with any difficult issues in future conversations. Teaching and learning these skills is important and plenty of time needs to be set aside so that we can practice all the usual skills of the consultation with greater depth, intention and intensity. It can be useful to practice breaking bad news as a kind of simulation similar to the way we practice CPR and there are lots of suggestions for doing this in the written materials that come with this chapter. This podcast is part of Module 4, TARC Essential Skills for Effective Planning, Explanations and Planning of Personalised Care. It concerns Chapter 7, How Do Shared Management Plans Actually Become More Effective? This is a very important issue for all clinicians who plan care with patients. The explanation and planning parts of the consultation often receive less attention and time than the information gathering elements. Listening effectively to find out about the patient's problems and getting enough information to make a diagnosis is rightly given very high priority by clinicians. The goal in planning care should be one of collaborating with patients to create a management plan that is medically appropriate and also feasible for that individual patient. However, all too often after listening carefully early on, Clinicians switch to lecture mode in the second part of the consultation, telling patients what the problem is and instructing them about the solutions. Perhaps it's no surprise then that many consultations get unstuck when clinicians propose plans for care that patients do not understand, do not accept or simply ignore after they leave the clinic. Sometimes problems arise in the explanation and planning part of the consultation because the clinician has misunderstood the patient's perspective in the early part of the consultation. The module skills for effective information gathering, what differences do a patient's thoughts, concerns and hopes really make, is a very useful chapter to think about here. However, collaborating with the patient to plan the next stage of their care requires the clinician to continue to listen actively, incorporating any changes in perspective that arise when the clinician has shared their thoughts about the problem and what might be done next. Continuing dialogue is a key for shared management plans to emerge, and this means management plans which are personalised to the specific needs of the individual patient. The clinician explains their thoughts and proposals while always inviting comments, responses and concerns from the patient, which the clinician must then respond to. Patients do, of course, differ in the degree to which they wish to get involved in decisions about their care. In emergency situations, or where the disease process tends to dictate the management plan, patients often prefer to delegate decisions to an effective clinician. In some cases, there is only one realistic option. It is still necessary for the clinician to explore the patient's response to any proposals and to have nuanced ways of negotiating through any difficulties or obstacles that the patient identifies. They are, after all, the expert in their own life. 
During information gathering, the clinician should have already formed an idea of the patient's own significant concerns, their thoughts and their ideas about things and what it is they're hoping for. In other words, the clinician has discovered what matters to the patient, not simply what is the matter with the patient. And that distinction is very important. It can be really easy to ask closed questions when checking the patient's views and saying something like, are you happy with that plan? Which tends to give the answer, yes. As in other parts of the consultation though, open questions or open directed questions are more useful and will help to highlight issues that are outstanding. Instead of a closed question, it's more helpful to encourage the patient contribution by asking things like, what questions have you got now? Which might get the response, well, no, not really. Um, and actually, I'm sort of wondering if the new tablets will give a bad re reaction with what I'm on already. Note that when the patient says, no, not really, they're not saying no. They're actually saying that, yes, they actually do have a question or concern. The wise clinician will take note of the hesitation, the word really, and wait for the actual question to emerge. Sometimes a gentle go on is a suitable response to the subtle cue of not really. Sometimes it's worth being explicit by saying something like, when patients say they don't really have any questions, I often find that really they do have some questions for me. What questions have you got? This also applies to a non-verbal clue in the patient's demeanour or tone of voice that indicates they are not completely happy about the plan. Some patients are far too polite to tell clinicians directly that their proposed plan is not workable. There are many useful ideas about how to negotiate effective plans in the reference list given in the written resources to this chapter. Encouraging the expression of concerns and doubts brings problems into the open. Only then is it possible to try and negotiate solutions. Finding creative ways around problems that patients have with management plans brings much satisfaction to experienced clinicians and flexibility to individual needs is highly valued by patients. Is this approach really necessary? Perhaps patients would prefer clinicians who know what to do and get on with it. There's actually a good deal of research in this area which has been elegantly summarised in Skills for Communicating with Patients. The reference is in the written resources that go along with this chapter. To summarise that, research though, when clinicians work collaboratively with patients rather than dictating plans, these very useful outcomes follow. Perhaps it's not surprising that patient satisfaction rises, but actually functional outcomes improve as well. Patients adopt more health promoting behaviours, they understand their illnesses better and they achieve better self-reported physical and mental health. However, even more significantly, Objective measures such as blood pressure and diabetic control are improved when a collaborative approach is used. What happens when clinicians are somewhat uncertain about what to do next, or if the patient and clinician disagree about the best way forwards? Research has shown that a degree of healthy friction in consultations may be associated with increased satisfaction. This is probably because the patient's perspective has been openly aired, discussed and valued. Similarly, expressions of uncertainty have been associated with greater satisfaction because an open dialogue and an exchange of ideas can work better 
than a paternalistic certainty-based approach, provided appropriate language is used. And that's covered in the chapter called What Do You Do When You Don't Know What To Do? Skills for Discussing Uncertainty. Does all this take a very long time? This is an important question. Clinicians need to take a wider view of what time means. Most clinicians will have had experiences in which the consultation goes round and round in circles with the clinician promote, proposing a plan that the patient evades or rejects. Similarly, multiple time-consuming follow-up consultations may occur because the clinician's plan was not carried out by a patient. This may be because that plan seemed impossible. I could never leave my demented husband alone to go to an outpatient clinic. Or perhaps the plan was unacceptable. The tablets contain gelatine, which I cannot take for religious reasons. If the patient's perspective has been taken into account from the start, a stronger clinician-patient relationship will be in place and it will be easier and take less time to incorporate the patient's needs into any plan. The examples that I gave there would be quickly highlighted if the clinician simply said, what questions have you got now? Or what response have you got to the plan that I'm proposing? Clinicians who get frustrated by difficulties in the planning phase of the consultation can usually unstick the difficulty by specifically paying attention to the patient's perspective. Stopping to ask, what's your response to all that? Might seem clunky at first, but it's a direct way to identify problems early and move towards solutions. Agreeing a suitable plan of action with the patient is a specialised form of a negotiation and should take both parties' thoughts and needs into account. While the clinician may have expert knowledge about healthcare matters, the patient remains the expert in knowing about their own circumstances, their own values and their own expectations. Bringing these two perspectives together enables management plans that really work for the patient and that also fulfil the clinician's need to deliver accurate, safe and defensible care. There are suggestions for teaching and learning these skills in the written materials that go along with this chapter and there's a comprehensive reference list as well to help you deepen your learning about these important matters. I am Avril Danshak, GP and primary care medical educator from Manchester and I'm talking today about part of the module called TALC, Skills for Effective Planning Care. And I'm going to focus today on the chapter which is called Do Non-Clinical Problems Take Up Your Clinic Time? Many patients bring life problems to consultations or kind of mixed up with their illnesses and their symptoms. Understanding the physical, psychological and social dimensions to anybody's problem helps us to take a holistic understanding approach. Yet clinicians may often feel that they can do little to help the so-called non-medical aspects of the patient's experience. Clinicians do sometimes attempt to do this and they may end up feeling overburdened. And those who don't attempt to deal with the non-medical aspects can feel frustrated by the lack of progress in their patients' lives. Sometimes consultations when clinicians are trying to help turn into very long conversations and yet little is actually achieved. Clinicians often feel that they'd like to have a service to refer patients to in this situation, and some of the newer social prescribing and care navigation services can be helpful for this, 
However, often in the hot seat of the consultation, patients don't want referrals or counselling. They want to be understood and helped straight away. Clinicians feel this pressure. A method called the bathe technique, which emphasises bathing the patient in empathy, can be a very helpful way to handle situations to the benefit of patients and clinicians alike. It's going to be described in this chapter. The bathe technique was developed by a family physician who realised that many patients had troubling personal problems and upsets, but who did not need or want psychiatry or referral to other services. The bathe technique that he developed emphasises listening and empathising with the patient's situation, but also encouraging them to tackle their own problems. This avoids the clinician feeling that they have to solve everything. It's an empowering approach for patients and can be used in many other settings, including conversations with colleagues, friends or family. The approach is to explore the problem, as identified by the patient, in several distinct stages, while at all times empathising with the patient and affirming their strengths. Bathe is a mnemonic for these stages and it works like this. The clinician uses the stages to explore the patient's problems and possible solutions, mainly offering empathy and understanding rather than direct problem solving. The problem solving for non-clinical issues is left to the patients themselves. What is a non-clinical issue in this context? Clearly, I'm going to stop there for a minute because the phone's ringing. Oh, okay. Oh, God. Uh, hi, Rebecca. Just let me um, do something for a second. Uh, uh, sorry about that. Um, got interrupted. I'm going to go back to um, saying the problem solving for non-clinical non issues is left to the patient themselves. What is a non-clinical issue in this context? Clearly, the treatment of a patient's acne is a medical issue. However, the same patient may complain of poor sleep because of anxiety about clinically unrelated problems. For example, being in arrears of rent and under threat of eviction, or conflicts with a boss at work. Both may cause distress, but are not clinical problems and cannot really be solved by the clinician even if the patient brings them up in a consultation and even if they have consequences such as poor sleep. So here is the structure that clinicians can use to explore the problem, show plenty of empathy, while also empowering the patient to take responsibility for making plans to sort out their own problems. The bathe technique is mnemonic for the following stages. B is for background. Using open-ended and evocative questions to understand what the background to the problem is, the clinician can use empathic and specific comments to show the patient that they've understood their predicament and that they empathise with it. Using encouraging phrases such as go on can easily help the patient to open up about what the problems are. Active listening skills such as reflecting back or paraphrasing combined with empathic comments such as work does sound extremely stressful at the moment, can also help. Open directed questions, which cannot be answered with a single word, but which are closed down a little bit, can also help. Examples of this would be something like, how did you get to the point where you were considering leaving? 
So after establishing the background, A is for affecting the patient. This means how is the patient feeling about the situation? What impact is this situation having on them or on others around them? Again, use empathy to help patients feel understood and supported. Naming feelings accurately can be a source of comfort to patients because it shows that their emotional state has been understood. We have B and A. T is for what aspect is troubling you the most. This is a very helpful way to focus the conversation on something specific. It helps to direct the dialogue towards what's most important to the patient. It's quite common for patients who are struggling with several issues to say something like, there's no one thing, what's troubling me the most is there are so many problems coming all at once. An empathic comment along the lines of, it seems as if being overwhelmed is the most troubling thing, can often deepen rapport. Being overwhelmed can also then be identified as a specific problem, which can be approached in its own right. This stage of asking what troubles you the most also helps to prioritise what should be tackled first and leads to consideration of what actions the person might take. Empathy is required throughout this. We have had B, A and T. The next stage is H, which is H is for handling, as in, how are you going to handle this? I personally never say, how are you going to handle this? Because it feels a bit American to me. But what this phrase means is, how are you going to tackle this? How are you going to deal with this? How are you going to approach this problem? So H in a way is for how. This helps the clinician to mobilise the patient's own resources and to endorse or support actions that they're taking. In the example of somebody being overwhelmed, you might say, well, how are we going to approach being overwhelmed? And strategies like making a list of problems and doing one thing at a time might seem simple, but they're very valid and practical ways to help the patient move forwards. If a patient responds with a comment such they have no idea what to do, or if they say, what would you do? The clinician should continue to be empathic. It is hard when you're not sure what to do next. While still exploring what the patient considers what their first steps might be. And asking what is the first step towards dealing with this is also a way forwards. Making a list of problems or thinking about how to tackle the most troubling problem can be useful strategies for the patient and can even be done after the consultation or at home. This can provide almost a kind of homework and if the patient is seen again, the clinician can pick up from there and say, how did you get on with doing such and such a thing? Follow-up can always be be offered and the bathe technique can be used again. We've had B, A, T and H and E is for empathy. The clinician needs to respond throughout the emotional experiences, the feelings and the relationship building elements throughout the bathe conversation. This is more empowering than just sticking to cognitive or decision making aspects of the problem. When following up people with chronic disease or longer term mental health issues, there is a technique related to this called the positive bathe, which can be even more helpful and that's covered in detail in the chapter called How to Enjoy Those Patients with Really Long-Term Problems.
There's more information about how to teach and learn the bathe technique and the written materials that go with this chapter, together with some written references and examples. This podcast was brought to you by NHS Professional Educators, making training available to all.